I think it's the same for coding. You just really need to get started with a language and start making products and shipping things. And whether it's Ruby on Rails or PHP or JavaScript, each has its own pros and cons, but I think you just need to get started. Welcome to Lawagon Live. This week, we have Ross Scheel, head of startup growth at Stripe and ex-head of mobile at Twitter, Amir, speaking to us. Ross is the growth lead for Stripe startup ecosystem in the UK. Before this, he was one of the first hires at Twitter Europe, running a team across 13 countries. In 2016, Ross was named as number one in tech at the Irish Career Awards and has also been named as top 10 mobile execs in many publications. Ross is heavily involved in the startup ecosystem, has a background in product strategy, commercial partnerships and leadership. He serves on boards and mentors several startups. For example, he works with Startup Bootcamp, Seedcamp and is an advisor for Yovo Mobile, as well as running his own podcast. Stripe, the company he works for, is a tech company that allows businesses to accept payments and manage their businesses online. It was founded in 2010 in San Francisco and now has thousands of employees and high-level investors, including the likes of Elon Musk. Keep listening to hear all about Ross's career so far and how he's approaching growth at Stripe. Not dissimilar to anyone else, I was um, pretty confused uh, in terms of what I wanted to do with my career and many periods of existential crisis around where that would move to in the future. So uh, I originally thought I wanted to be a lawyer and complete my postgrad in law and was training to, to be a, lo- a lawyer uh, numerous years ago, but realized that was a vocation and you really have to have a love for it. So you know, I certainly didn't have that love and uh, went back and did a master's in marketing that was pretty forward thinking at the time, very data driven and analytical. So it brought me into the world of um, data driven companies and company building on multiple different dimensions from financial planning to marketing to, to sales. And I originally got my introduction to the startup world for an Irish startup at the time that was called Muzu TV. It's kind of the poster child of Irish startups, but is now gone by the, the wayside, uh, as many startups do. And then um, was hired as the first commercial person for Twitter in Europe in the European headquarters in 2012 um, and went through many different periods of growth at that time, over that time frame from hyper growth through to, um, you know, downsizing to hyper growth again, which was a really interesting journey to, to go through. I ran the mobile business unit at Twitter. So that was everything from mobile advertising to mobile platform um, and how we build relationships with the biggest consumer applications, but also how the ads business at the time was generating revenue for, for Twitter. And uh, following Twitter, I set up a consultancy, did a couple of other things, and I'm now in Stripe as head of startup growth. So I run a European team that builds partnerships with venture capital firms um, and works with entrepreneurs and founders to ensure that they're uh, able to build amazing applications and businesses on top of the Stripe API. Um, and just touching on your time at Twitter, you mentioned the different phases of, of growth. Um, but how did the the culture and the mission change while you were while you were there? Um, dramatically, which is unusual. I think like ultimately, when you look at a, a business, you know, the mission should never um, really change. You know, ultimately, should generally be generally be quite consistent. And Twitter went through um, various um, iterations of what its mission was originally: um, connecting every person on the planet. Um, connecting people that you're interested in, uh, Twitter's what's happening, as you've probably seen on some TV advertisements over over the last the last year. And I think the reason for that um, identity crisis, for Twitter's point of view, is the lack of founder DNA in the company for a period of time. 
where it was run by you know, execs like and very well-meaning and um, established executives, but executives that didn't really have that product DNA in the company and weren't weren't the original original forefathers of the product. Um, so for a period of time before Jack Dorsey came back into the business, there was that you know existential period around what is um, what is Twitter. Um, so I think you know the product mission um, changed significantly over that time frame and. You know, product mission is probably the the most important thing to get correct in a company because it's you know the, the ultimate north star for product strategy and how the product develops over time. So you know across those three different missions I, I mentioned, Twitter went from everything from being an application for TV to being an application for news to being an application for sports broadcasts to being an to being a social network and now being a um, information application application again and. Um, you can lose spirals and quarters of earnings, and um, you know Wall Street's not a very forgiving, forgiving place. Um, so you know, that can be incredibly disadvantageous for for any business. Um, so I'd say significantly, uh, Twitter's in a you know re- from an outsider perspective now. Twitter seems to be in a very strong position. Has found a good product identity again. If anyone's following their earnings reports, their earnings reports are. Uh, very strong on a quarter-to-quarter basis, so seems to have found that product momentum again, both on the consumer side, but also on the advertising side. Um, and now you're uh, head of startup growth at Stripe, uh, also doing pretty well. Um, what's your what's your day-to-day like um, at, at Stripe? My day-to-day involves, um, we're, I guess, to take a step back and describe the Stripe culture first. So, as a company, we're a very data-driven culture, very product-oriented culture, and place a high emphasis on strategy. Um, so a lot of the initiatives that we carry out and deploy uh, have heavy amounts of data-driven work that go into them and heavy amounts of strategic work that go into them. So a lot of my day-to-day is around strategy and planning, um, assessing um, what the total addressable market is for startups in Europe, um, what kind of product advantages we have with that with those segments, um, how we enable those startups, products we may want to develop in the future for those segments in order to provide more value to those entrepreneurs and founders, but also to think about how we build a sustainable business over time. So I'd say bucket number one is you know the strategy and, and planning bucket. Uh, bucket number two is scaling the team. We're, we're a rapidly growing business. Um, we've about 2,000 plus people now. Uh, so scaling that team across Europe to ensure that we have the best partnerships and the best relationships with venture capital firms and accelerators um, in every market across Europe from established mature markets like the UK and France to emerging markets for us like Israel and, and um, Eastern Europe. And we're also very biased towards community. Um, so you'll see us very visible in the community um, at a lot of different events and conferences. So just came back from SASTOC in, in Dublin. Um, we'll be at the Web Summit um, in November, Slush in December in Finland. Um, we're a global team and we collaborate um, heavily with other regions at Stripe. So uh, there's a lot of international travel as well. So I've just come back from San Francisco, working with our San Francisco office. So I'd say it's a combination and the intersection of those three three buckets. That, that informs the day-to-day. And in terms of, in, in your words, what would you say, what is Stripe and what kind of problems is it is it helping to solve in the industry? Stripe is a payments platform. And you know, on the topic of, of mission, the mission of Stripe is to increase the GDP of the internet. 
and the, that's you know one thing that you know before Stripe, but even now inside Stripe, that I'm consistently impressed by is how true the company is to that mission and to that vision around increasing the GDP of the internet. So it can can sound like a very lofty um, mission. You know, what does that mean exactly? But essentially, it's everything that enables an entrepreneur or a founder to start, run, and scale an internet business. Um, so Stripe originally started as a payments platform to simply accept vanilla payments online. And then over the last number of years has involved into a full stack e-commerce platform for many different industries. So now we have a suite of 10 applications that sit on top of the Stripe API that are targeted towards startups and scale-ups in different industries from Stripe Billing, which is built for SaaS companies, to Stripe Connect, which is built for marketplace companies, Stripe Radar and Stripe Sigma, which are um, business insights and AI applications to prevent fraud and um, build uh, increased business insight in your business so you can interrogate data more. Um, so you can think of Stripe as you know everything that enables a founder to start that internet business. Uh, an application we also launched about two years ago, Stripe Atlas. Um, so Stripe Atlas is our founder API where any founder around the world can incorporate via Stripe Atlas and build um, an internet dataware incorporated entity in the US in the space of 24 hours legal tax accountancy. So, you know, we see ourselves as deepening into that full stack of enabling um, any individual around the world to start an internet business. Um, originally oriented towards developers, but now it's very much multi-constituent where we have lot of conversations with lots of different businesses from folks like Salesforce, Facebook, John Lewis, the UK government to a uh, man and his dog in a garage with his um, text editor. Um, and what would you say the, the priorities are now um, and what are the plans for, for growth over the next few years? Priorities for Stripe? Well, you know, I think for us, everything pin comes back to that mission, increasing the GDP of the internet. So, you know, we think of that in, in a couple of different ways. The one, one is enabling upstarts. Um, so we want to increasingly... Um, lower the barrier and the cost thresholds for uh, an entrepreneur or founder starting starting an internet business. Um, so that's through breadth and depth of applications that solve all of those pain points that go hand in hand with setting up an internet business. So increasing the range of product and the range of support beyond our standard payments API. Um, the second is around digital transformation of businesses. Increasingly, we're seeing um, old corporate entities and anachronistic businesses um, turn to Stripe as a platform for reinvention of their business, um, where they're looking to use the same tools and the same tactics and the same strategies that scale-ups and startups and tech-forward businesses businesses are are using. Um, international expansion is is the third priority for us. So um, India is a market that's in beta for us at the moment. Um, Latin America. Uh, we're generally global in terms of the product and the product offering, but there's complexity in the business where um, presentment and settlement curries, currencies, so the ability to present with a local currency and settle it in, a, in a local currency, whilst it seems simplistic in the outside in, um, requires a lot of work with financial institutions and regulatory and, and lawyers. So as we roll out in new markets, it's almost like starting a new business the entire time. Um, and then also from a um, product um, diversity point of view, you, we really want to ensure that um, Stripe is there at the coal face of a business being started. 
So that obviously means our payments API, but it also means um, products and applications like Stripe Atlas that enable businesses to get started in different ways that are not, are not just payments as well. Um, and how much of a focus will there be on like, user experience of the existing products and how big is the, the user experience team, the UX team? Um, I think we think we think about user experience on a few different dimensions. I guess if you think, take a step back and you look at our users, our, our users are um, developers and engineers. So we think about developer experience in uh, in a very robust way, where in terms of developer experience, all of our, our documentation is a first-class citizen at Stripe. When you look at Stripe's developer documentation, um, it's clearly marked once you set up a Stripe um, account. Everything is personalized. Once you log into Stripe, your developer documentation will be personalized. Prompts for API keys and tokens are all are all personalized. We are very bullish on backwards compatibility of all of our APIs. So from a developer experience point of view, we make sure that every API we release is backwards compatible so that any business that integrates with Stripe doesn't have to go through the very arduous task of completely re-engineering their business so it's compatible with the Stripe API the entire time. So want to make sure that the barriers to entry for you know, every team, whether they have a lot of developer resources or minimal developer resources, their business still runs in Stripe irrespective of our product direction or any changes that we may make, make in, this, in the Stripe API. Also on developer experience, we like to you know, drink our own Kool-Aid. Um, so we always release sample applications for every single product that we release. So for marketplaces, it's called Rocket Rides. For billing, we have a SaaS application where we demonstrate via video and via documentation and via essays and blogs um, all of the best practices for how developers should think about integrating the Stripe API. We have every single code library language um, SDK available. So if you're a Ruby developer or a React developer or a PHP developer, all of the documentation is there for you. Um, so that's like the, the first big lever for um, you know, user experience, but developer experience for us. And then on user experience, um, in terms of the end users of the Stripe API. So as an example, we power Deliveroo's commerce. If you've ever bought anything off Deliveroo, the checkout is a Stripe checkout. The payments experience is a, is a Stripe payments experience. Um, and we think about that in you know the same robust way where you know as a business we've built up all of these data points on conversion best in class conversion for um, you know what motivates a consumer to convert what kind of color schemes motivate consumers to convert uh, what kind of payment methods on a country by country basis motivate a consumer to convert and we've packaged all of those up in um, user experience tools and widgets. Um, so many of those are in the form of Stripe Elements, um, which is a you know five lines of code that you drop onto a onto a web page or Stripe checkout, um, and we have you know all of those conversion tools available in all of the products. Uh, so we recently did an analysis of the seventy of the top one hundred e-commerce sites in the UK. So like big e-commerce sites, like um, you know in there would be Treatwell, Misguided, um, and others, and 75% of the top e-commerce sites have, have errors in their checkout flow. So it's like a leaky bucket um, over time in terms of how those businesses think about payments being a strategic lever in their business and you know not just a dumb pipe in and out of the business, making sure that they're working with tools that uh, facilitate additional commerce and enable them to build a, 
a good P&L. And, and obviously you, you touched on kind of payment um, behavior data. You must track um, quite a lot of that. How do you, how do you use that um, in developing your products and improving your, your services? We think of it on, on a few different dimensions. I think that the main one we think about and for any business, kind of gone are the days now where we see a startup building for one single market. Now we see startups building for global markets. So it's very rare in some instances, you know, where the, the market is very big. Of course, it happens. But, you know, for a lot of different industries now, usually startups are building for, for global markets. Um, and the biggest thing we um, monitor and track in that context is um, the payment method on a country by country basis. So what's called as APMs in the industry. Um, so alternative payment methods, but they're not really alternative at all. They're, they're main, the main payment method in uh, each given market. So in Brazil, that's like Boleto. In India, that's cash on delivery. Um, in um, a market like the UK, it's very card oriented market. It's card payment, uh, but it differs across the, the whole world. Um, and oftentimes when you know businesses are entering these markets or entrepreneurs are targeting these markets, they're not aware of that cultural context. And the most cultural thing in the world is money and how you, and how and how people pay for things. Um, so that's whether it's by um, WeChat Pay in, in the East as well as an example. So uh, we build up a lot of data points and best practices for how um, startups and tech businesses should think about um, export and cross-border commerce and new market entry in that context. I think that's probably one of the, one of the most powerful things that we we um, track and work with businesses on to ensure they have best practices. Um, also on, you know, I'm not going to get into the, the nitty gritty of uh, payments geekery with every, everybody tonight, but, uh, you know, payment acceptance rates across card networks um, on a region by region basis. So understanding what your payments acceptance rates are for MasterCard or Visa or for Amex, the authorization rates, the decline rates. Um, if you do not have a fully optimized global business where your um, conversion and checkout is speaking to the local rails of all of those financial institutions, you may find yourself in a world where you have 20% 20, 20 declines or 25% declines, which never happens with a Stripe user, but you know, some other... Um, providers in, in, in the market in the marketplace that can happen. So that's like 25, you're turning away a quarter of your customers, right? You're not letting them transact with you on your platform. Uh, so that's something we also track very deeply. Um, and then, you know, I'd say the third one is fraud. Um, fraud is in endemic now in many different industries, particularly um, direct to consumer industries. And we're also, you know, starting to see a little bit of a little bit of a little bit of it in B2B as well. Um, so we built a tool called Stripe Radar, um, where in the US, we've seen about 90% of every credit card in circulation, credit and debit card in circulation. In the UK, we've seen um, greater than 80% of every credit and debit card in circulation. Um, so we have hundreds of, th hundreds of thousands of data points where we can build machine learning models and algorithms where with a very high degree of probability, we can detect fraud before it happens. Um, and we offer up those insights to merchants and to founders and to you know, every, every business in the Stripe dashboard so that they can see all of this data um, across their customer base um, to protect their, protect their business. Um, and you touched on fraud obviously being quite a challenge going forward. What other, what other big challenges are there to, for Stripe um, over the next few years, um, either from kind of that kind of thing or from new technologies? Um, I think... Look, we're Stripe is a humble 
but ambitious company. And we also like to hire humble but ambitious people. Finding that kind of profile is hard, to be honest. Um, so our biggest challenge is ensuring that we can continue to scale at the rate we want to scale whilst being true to the Stripe hiring bar and not sacrificing on you know, the kinds of individuals you want to hire, whether that's in account management or marketing or um, engineering products, um, the same, same hiring, hiring rules apply. Um, so I say that's, that's challenge number one, ensuring we're able to source the best people that's aligned with the Stripe mission, where they're additive to Stripe culture and that they're problems, problem solvers. Um, I think challenge number two for us I wouldn't say it's necessarily, you know, a challenge. I wouldn't frame it in that in that regard. You know, it's certainly you know, a big opportunity for the business, but ensuring that we continue to serve all of the global markets um, in a way that's very robust for every business, whether that's uh, a business in uh, Mexico that's completely domestic, or a business in Israel that's an export business, or a startup here in London that's you know just focused on Europe and we want to make sure that we are enabling our user base and our customer base to access all of the global markets and building that infrastructure um, takes time you know we've certainly built it built a built a good chunk of it but we're continuing to build that inf- infrastructure further um, so I'd say they're the they're the three big challenges for us um, and just going back to your kind of day-to-day uh, role, to how do you, on one end, how do you interact with the, the dev product and marketing teams? And on the other, to what extent do you have interaction with the investors um, as well at Stripe? So in the dev and marketing team, very closely, we're a um, fully cross-functional team. So we have planning cycles every quarter where we solicit feedback from lots of different segments and customer bases. Um, so we've just carried out a review and survey of the startup segments to understand what the key product asks and areas for us to focus on more from a product point of view. Um, we bake those into our product roadmap and in order for us to bring those to fruition, we have product managers and program managers that work very closely with the developer and engineering teams in order to ensure that we ship those products at a good cadence uh, every quarter or every half. Um, we're obviously a developer-oriented business, like that's, that's, that's the, you know, the core modus operandi of, of Stripe. So you know, developers are involved in strategic business, deci- business deci- decisions as well. Um, so you know, engineering and product is a key stakeholder to any business decision that we, we take at Stripe. It's a very reciprocal relationship um, for that business to have full transparency into any market developments or any business asks and vice versa for the go-to-market teams to also have full transparency into engineering and developer priorities because you know, as you build, you know, and you guys will be seeing this in you know your own respective industries and the projects that you're building, as you build projects, um, not that you incur technical technical debt, but you know when you're you're building infrastructure, you have to pay down um, you know code in order for the business to operate. Um, and that that code needs to be constantly maintained. It's not just the new and flashy things that you can release every quarter. It could be like a new payment method or a new application. Uh, but the business uh, needs to have strong infrastructure that's usable, reliable, stable, elastic, can be scaled up, can be scaled down. Um, and that's a big priority for us. So we want to make sure that um, you know we're allocating significant engineering and engineering resource to that as well. 
Um, so yeah, the, the developer and engineering teams have a have a ton of um, collaboration with with all teams. Um, we run a concept at Stripe called Charters. So I'm sure many of you have heard of OKRs. It's a similar similar construct. As saying recently, like oh, Google invented OKRs to prevent other startups from um, ta- taking over the world. So like, there's definitely a right and wrong time, right, right and wrong time for OKRs. Uh, but we view Charters as a halfway house into uh, having a suitable construct that um, enables you to put a goalpost around a key initiative, but not being too wedded to arbitrary metrics or results um, where you're trying to prove the wrong thing and maybe getting back false positives or, or false, false negatives. Uh, so a charter is like a very simple one-page document that all teams align align behind. So if it's in there, with each product at Stripe, um, we have engineering teams and go-to-market teams that serve those products. So the engineering team, the go-to-market team will commit to a one-sheeter of what their key goals are for that quarter. It also enables clear communication between those teams around what's the priority for, for each team. So on your question of how, how we collaborate, uh, and they've worked really well for us, um, the charters. So we write about that quite a lot on the Stripe blog as well. Um, and outside of your work at Stripe, you also um, work with Startup Bootcamp and Seedcamp. Can you just tell us a bit about your work with them? Yeah, yeah, I work with a, work with a few different funds. Um, it's really you know just to to um, mentor, provide perspective, ensure guidance with startups at seed and Series A stage on how they should think about um, their expanding their business and internationalizing, uh, building a go-to-market strategy, and all everything that goes hand in hand with that. Um, so they can be very diverse. And tactical things like how to make your first hire in a function um, for sales or for recruiting or for your developer team if you're a technical founder and you haven't made that hire before. Or they can be more um, strategic things depending dependent on the life cycle of the company. Let's say they're doing a million in annual recurring revenue. They're at Series A stage and they want to understand what kind of markets they should enter, how they should think about navigating that. Uh, so, you know, mentoring them, sharing perspective on how to think about entering multiple markets um, as a as a founder. Um, so, so, yeah, wide, wide, wide variety of different industries from SaaS through to mobile applications, through to um, deep tech companies. Um, and last year you, you launched a personal project, um, the Scaling Startups podcast. Um, what kind of guests, topics have you been covering uh, on that? Uh, yeah, that was just for fun, really. Uh, so I guess in my industry, I have conversations with a lot of really amazing people the entire time, and they um, don't go anywhere necessarily in terms of sharing those learnings or surfacing the conversation elsewhere. So I thought I would uh, run a couple of seasons of a podcast, and I ran season one and season two, I'm just about to release season three. Uh, that was with the founder of Angry Birds was on it. Um, the first founder of Google Ventures was on it. Um, it's kind of a mixture of VC, operator, founder um, from seed stage companies through to late stage. And for season three, it's more American, North American oriented. Uh, but again, the ethos is um, similar to what we've been talking about. It's all around best practices for how to think about um, finding product market fit, how to um, accelerate your burn to move to a new investment stage or preserve burn um, dependence upon um, how the business how the business is going, how to think about new markets, raising VC funding, 
uh, everything that goes hand in hand with uh, building a company or, or building a startup. And what was that like uh, learning to become a presenter for anyone in the audience wanting to, to do the same thing? <laughs> yeah, learning curve. Like you have some uh, areas that you need to get to get better on. Um, every time I listen back to uh, to an episode, I cringe cringe a little bit. But you, you have to you know go through that process. It's an iterative process of understanding like what kind of blind spots you have, and you're taking the feedback and building it into um, your project moving forward to make sure that and it's a better experience for your listeners or you know, consumers of your products. It's no different to running a product inside a tech company. You go through feedback cycles. You make sure that feedback is incorporated into your product. You course correct accordingly uh, in order to make the adjustments. Yeah. Um, and you learned to code at a bootcamp like, like we are. Um, what are your views of, of bootcamps and how would you say it's kind of helped you in your day to day? My views of boot camps, I think it depends on the individual. Uh, so I think for me, I need a very structured environment when it comes to when it comes to coding. And boot camps, like no doubt, provide that. So some folks are totally fine with self-learning. Um, some folks are fine with online online learning. Uh, for me, having a structured environment and milestones and deadlines uh, gave me the structure that I I needed in order to feel like I was demonstrating progress. Um, and you also have access to, you know, peers and tutors there as well. A lot of people obsess, I think, in the initial stages of like what language they want to pick, um, which I certainly did. And in hindsight, now I'm like, you know, ultimately, you know, get started with any language. Um, it's a good quote from Picasso. He's like, when artists get together, they talk about form, structure, and meaning. And when uh, so when art critics get together, they talk about form, structure, and meaning. And when artists get together, they talk they talk about turpentine. And um, I think it's the same for for coding. You just really need to get started with a language and start making product and shipping things. And whether it's Ruby on Rails or PHP or JavaScript, um, each has its own pros and cons. Um, but I think you just need to get started um, ultimately. So I think yeah, it's been a it's been a rewarding experience for me I decided to put to press pause on the the frameworks um as I want to get um better at you know vanilla uh, like continue to perfect in my expertise with vanilla javascript because a lot of people rush into frameworks and nowadays the languages have evolved to a point where the 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 abstractions the frameworks previously made you know can also be done in the core languages now and sure, it's beneficial for single-page applications and for speed and more robust applications. But you can actually gain a better understanding of writing in the core languages, and then moving on to frameworks, frameworks later. That's very true, and very true in JavaScript in particular. Um, so you know, next year I'll focus on React and, and Node. In terms of my core day-to-day, um, not a ton, really, really to be honest. Um, everyone at Stripe knows SQL, so it's a generally numerical um, literate company um so that you know helped somewhat um but i'm not really using it in terms of my day-to-day i guess for me my motivation behind is like likely in the future i will launch a product and you know it's beneficial in that context um i don't know when you know that could be 10 years away it could be five years away who knows but i think it's an advantageous skill for somebody to have to have if they um have uh, ambitions to build their own company in the future what do you think, um, might be a big question as well, what do you think the, the future of mobile technologies is for the next kind of five to ten years? It's mm, a good question. Without giving away your, your product idea. <laughs> I guess it depends what I, in what way you look at it. I think it, for direct-to-consumer mobile apps, uh, I think we, we may be in a world where mobile apps will go away. 
in the next five years. Um, um, there will be super applications like hub and spoke applications um, where you'll increase, like you saw a product announcement from Uber last week where um, Uber like has now multiple services and multiple categories in its, in its application. And I think those super applications will serve as um, hub and spoke models to distribute consumers out to different t categories of applications in, in the future. So I think that's probably one big trend that you'll begin to see on the on the direct consumer side. Um, okay, obviously we li we live in a multi multi channel world, and I think increasingly uh, we'll start to see more and more robust measurements and attribution across all of those different channels. Where um, there's a lot of probabilistic um, methods for measurements of consumers as they move from web to tablet to mobile through to a wearable through to a physical location it's very probabilistic it's not deterministic i think that technology will get a lot better um and on the languages side i think that you'll begin to see more um mobile specific advantages um built being built into being built into languages. If you look at the popularity of React and um, similar languages of its of its ilk, I think those languages will continue continue to evolve to cater to consumers um, across all devices, not just mobile mobile devices, but uh, connected devices into the future and wearable devices as well. And do you see any big challenges for um, to Stripe's business model uh, from those kind of new technologies? We're 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 you know we're we take like uh, we're so we're a healthy, healthy, healthily paranoid company, um, you know. So we obviously look at trends, trends in the marketplace the entire time. Um, right now, I don't think so. I think we're you know Stripe is in a is in a you know a good position. Um, our growth is indexed against the future of the internet. Um, our mission is to increase the GDP of the internet. So it's a consistently consistently growing market. And sure, there's like various tweaks and adjustments we need to make to our product offering as various technologies mature. Um, you know, one example of that is um, Bitcoin. You know, Stripe was one of the first uh, payment platforms, the first payment platform to implement Bitcoin in its product. Um, because in, you know, rewinding like five, six years ago now, at that point, you know, the explosion of Bitcoin as a store of value hadn't yet happened. And some businesses and consumers, albeit very marginal amount, were uh, conducting transactions in cryptocurrency. Um, so we felt at the time that may be a trend um, which businesses and consumers would want. So we brought it into the API. Um, and then, you know, fast forward five, six years, the landscape changes dramatically where is Bitcoin a utility? Is it a store of value um, due to the volatility in the price of Bitcoin and how much it fluctuated. Uh, no consumer was going to pay in Bitcoin because you know they could lose significant significant amounts of money in one one transaction. Similar risk existed for the merchant. Um, so you know, in line with usage we saw in the market, we deprecated and sun sunsetted um, Bitcoin at that at that particular moment in time. So you know, we reserve a lot of optionality in our business and preserve flexibility in order to make those adjustments. Um, as we see those trends and whether it's a segment that we really want to serve in the form of our existing user base 
guiding us or you know sharing feeding, feedback with us so that's something they need thanks for listening to Lewagon Live tune in next week for another episode if you haven't already make sure you subscribe by hitting the subscribe button 